September 11th, 2010. VGN Radio presents Kevin's Oblast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. Welcome. Okay, so I haven't put together a show in a long time. For Oblast, well, it hasn't been that long, but one of the reasons I did not have any time to do a show uh, is mainly because I've been kind of strapped down with a number of work projects at my day job, which um, we have a user's conference that comes up every year uh, where we have our customers come in and uh, we do presentations and show them things we've been working on as well as have educational uh, seminar type things to help them use the various software tools that we sell. And uh, Everybody gets ready for this. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of running around and scurrying around in order to do that. I've also been involved pretty heavily with a VMware vSphere uh, configuration and setup, which is basically like emulation technology um, that uh, you use to, um, you know, host uh, operating systems. We're basically doing this thing where we resell our software to customers um, uh, who are um, essentially in the shredding industry. Uh, but other industries as well, uh, shredders, um, tend to be guys who are running small outfits. They usually have a shredding truck or a couple of shredding trucks, and um, they want to grow, and they want to have a software package in order to make that all happen. But the problem is, in a lot of cases, these people are not very um, computer savvy. And so in order to run like a an operation that uses, uh, you know, the software that we provide, you generally have to have, uh, you know, some computer knowledge because you need a server and you need to have client access on that server. And they want to be able to offer features. Uh, we have like a, like a website feature that they can integrate into their server. And, you know, in order to do that, you need to have the right firewall configuration set up and a DMZ and, and um, you know, you have to have you know, domain controllers and DNS servers and all this bullshit that, uh, you know, if you're a computer guy, uh, it's not a big deal. But if you're not, and, you know, you're one of these guys that, um, you know, is working out of a warehouse, which is a lot of what our customers are, that uh, that kind of stuff is, is problematic. And, of course, if they were a big, bigger outfit, you know, a big company, they could hire an IT guy, bring people in, handle all that. But when you're dealing with the sort of startup operations it's not really something that they can, uh, you know, handle. So what we do is we um, we sell a uh, virtual space where we um, it's almost like running out of a, a server from like a host, but in but we put our software on there, and uh, we give them a number of licenses to log in, and they can log into that, and all the software is there, the servers there, the configurations there, um, you know, the Active Directory, the logins, the passwords, the um, the website, the, the networking and everything is all built into that. And, um, and then our software is, you know, part of that as well. And they can then use that. You know, they just go in with terminal services or a remote desktop, basically in Windows, log into it and do their day-to-day, you know. And the printers are hooked up and they're syncing and all this sort of stuff. Um, and all of that's running on a VMware ESXi uh, vSphere license server. And, uh, yeah. I do all that. Everything that I just described to you. I, uh, I build out the, um, the VMware vSphere ESXi server on my own. Um, wasn't trained to do that. Uh, figured it out. Currently in the middle of building a, uh, a SAN using OpenSAN on my own, which is uh, like a network attached storage 
little bit, a little bit bigger than that, though, a little bit more complicated, because um, it's built like with raids and all this sort of shit. And uh, then, um, yeah, I set up the Active Directory, the server, the, uh, the client access, terminal service licensing, all of it on there in order for them to get in and um, use this application. The applications that I, like one of a, a one, at least one of which I've actually written the entire thing for. So sometimes I sit around and I wonder, why do I need the company? What's the co- you know, like I'm, I'm doing all that. What's what's the rest of these people doing that I'm working for? Uh, it's not fair. I mean, they do, they handle support sort of, and they do handle sales, but um, I don't know. Somebody should hire me at a at a bigger company doing something good because. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if my company, the company I'm at right now, is going to survive. It's one of these things where um, there hasn't been raises in uh, over three years. Okay, the economy's down, but one of the things is that in this industry, the economy being down is um, not a. Uh, it shouldn't matter too much to my to this industry. It kind of matters a little bit with shredding, shredders, because the price of paper and things like that on the open market um, is less than you know it used to be so they don't make as much money on the recycling of the shredding paper which actually matters when you're jumping into that business so um, a lot of startups aren't starting up right now because it's not as lucrative so we're not selling as many but we actually don't sell our shredding software for that much money um, so it's kinda like eh, you know the startups aren't really gonna bring it over to us and um, uh, we are losing one of our m- most major customers period and uh, they're slowly, probably over the course of the next two years, pulling out, which is going to remove a lot of revenue out of my company. And um, I don't think my job is at risk simply because, like like I said, I'm the guy who sets up all of this stuff. I mean, if I'm not there, then I don't know who the fuck's going to do it because there ain't nobody else there that's going to be able to do all this shit. Um, there's only three programmers, and the other two guys are family men who um, are, you know, they work their nine to five and go home and deal with their families, and um, you know, they're they're not really hooked in like I am by any by any stretch of the imagination. And they tell you that themselves. They'd be like, no, you know. Um, so it's like, um, you know, the the boss got everybody around the other day and said that. Uh, you know, he hasn't had to lay anybody off yet, you know, which is a good sign. And uh, he says that, um, you know, there won't be any raises this year. Maybe there'll be a bonus at the end of the year. We sometimes get a Christmas bonus. It's not it's not a lot. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, anything's better than nothing. But it's not like we get, like, a lot of perks where I work. I mean, you go to some companies and they got, like, freaking daycare, workout, center, you know, um, uh, just cafeteria lunches and... Um, they have little day trips out and things like that. And my boss tries, you know, he has a little boat trip. We have this little users conference. We have like a Friday lunch thing, you know, for a little company and for only like 13 people that we have there, it's, it's fairly, you know, they do it. They do a pretty decent job on trying, you know what I'm saying? But, um, as the company keeps, the um, losing money though, it's, it's becoming an issue of like, okay, well, where am I going to be 10 years from now? You know, what am I going to do 10 years out? Because obviously, like, we have no we have no new products in the pipe. I mean, nothing. Nobody's working on anything new. We don't have anything um, 
planned, and we, and we basically have software that has a foundation that is built on um, an older Microsoft product um, uh, called uh, FoxPro, which um, was was uh, supported by Microsoft up until um, uh, Visual Studio. Um, I think it was like two thousand and uh, or Visual Studio was it ninety eight? I, I don't remember. That that's how old it is, and um, they uh, Microsoft only supports. Um, this sort of corporate software for um, 10 years. And so in 2013, you know, the beginning of 2013, like January 1st, 2013, uh, so basically two years after this year, uh, the support for Fox Pro will, will be gone for Microsoft. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to stop working, but if it does, if they change something in the operating system, then the applications that are written in this, in, in, in the front end, uh, no longer going to be functional for us, and then we're going to have to have workarounds. And the problem is, is that we have this software package that is so immense, so large, that um, I, I didn't write this. Uh, this is like I write software that hooks into this. Um, I didn't write this big, this big package that we have. But it's so, it's such a, it's such a big, meaty package that has been developed on for years. That um, to rewrite it, we actually went out like two years ago. And we got a bunch of consultants together um, from different places. We get we talked to people in offshore in Costa Rica. We talked to people offshore in India. We talked to people onshore. We talked to some experts um, out west. Uh, we had all kinds of people coming. I actually organized all that too. We had, <laughs> we had all these people come in one at a time. We br- we brought them in. You know, we flew them in. Uh, they we we had meetings with them. We sat them down. We discussed the software with them. We let them look at our source code um, and. Uh, Basically, um, we had a situation where um, to rewrite the entire thing in a, in a modern framework, like, say, Microsoft.net, um, would have taken about $2 million and about, uh, you know, 20 people, um, 20, say, offshore workers working on it uh, full-time until, until it was done in order to meet a deadline that we had set up. I mean, obviously, you could have less people and longer time in order to do it today, but we had, we had a sort of deadline that we had set up. And uh, the, the, the labor charge and everything that we were looking at, based on offshore, uh, was $2 million. Uh, we had a couple of people come in, like I said, they were experts from out west, and um, they looked at this stuff and basically didn't even really want to deal with it um, because it was just one of these monster sort of things that, you know, they're not really going to want to um, put, you know, get into it because they'll be, they'll be, they know that they'll be into it for years and years to come. And they just didn't really want to do that. But, you know, they advised us in, on various things that we ought to do. <clears throat> and um, But the bottom line is, is that we're a little company, and a little company that is not um, always in the black. Some, some years we're kind of dipping in the red, and some years we're in the black. So we don't have $2 million to spend. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have that kind of revenue to go out and spend $2 million to rewrite it. And even if we did rewrite it. Um, it would be questionable if we would be able to make our money back because we're in a niche market and the market is uh, actually kind of shrinking. And so the ability to sell this software um, to this niche market isn't very good. So that kind of puts us in a rock and a hard place. So what we ended up doing was we actually rewrote the back end of the application through um, from Fox Pro into uh, SQL Server. And uh, we actually 
contracted out a company um, outside of Cleveland, and uh, they had brought in um, people, had hired people, and they worked on it um, with a crew of people, and they actually went out of business um, working on this. Uh, because and it took them two years, two years, to um, unhook it from the FoxPro data, just to hook it into the SQL data, where it is today. But the front end is still in FoxPro, and like I said, in 2013 it expires. So that's one huge problem we have, and we have not even dabbled, or touched, or discussed how we're going to um, tackle it. My boss, employer, CEO, pretty much thinks that. Um, the software will continue to go forward because, hey, what do other people do, right? They're running old software. They're, um, they're making do, you know? So that's a pretty bad way to look at things, though, because the industry tends to actually change, and if you try and cling to old technology, you're going to lose. And, you know, we have, co- we have competitors, we have competition, and they're moving forward, and they're doing things, and, and uh, you know, they, they've, they've tackled these problems a long time ago, and we're still kind of stuck with them. And so, but we have a money problem. We don't have the revenue to do it. And I think one of the things they hope would happen is that we would get a big player that would come in, look at what we have, and say, well, you know, you guys got this here. This is pretty cool. How about we fund part of this rewrite, and we get that done? And uh, th- th- that sounds actually kind of crazy. It's actually happened before. I can't actually tell you um, who, but we've actually had some major financial institutions come in and look at our software and actually purchase the source code from us for a lot of money and um, so they could rewrite it. Uh, because basically it's not so much that the software itself is um, the, the best thing since sliced bread. You know, like I said, it's a big ungainly monster. It's the business rules. It's the rules that you, just, you determine things, you know, what it, how things work. And those business rules are actually worth a lot of money. Because if you, you can't just jump into this industry and start writing this stuff. You actually have to understand all of the rules that go into it, in, you know, in this industry. So, um, you know, they didn't really want to do all that themselves. They didn't want to start from scratch and figure it out. So they ended up purchasing the software in order to do that. But uh, the odds of that happening, again, is, is probably you know, not very good because our competition is pretty relentless in undercutting us and, um, uh, you know, getting our customers to, to go over to them. And, and um, we're not necessarily doing the best job that we could be doing to retain the customers that we have, primarily because we're not really um, evolving our software rapidly enough to keep them interested. That's my opinion. I, I can't say what they think. But Anyway, so, I mean, I sit there and I, you know, and we're at the cafeteria and the boss says, you know, hey, everybody, uh, you know, this is how things are going. And, you know, at the end of the year, of course, we're going to have to look at our medical benefit again and see what that happens. Now, right now, the medical benefit where I work, for instance, um, and, and I'm sure this is everywhere, you know, in America. If you have, a, if you have some sort of coverage, you, you're dealing with some sort of, um, you're so, some sort of plan. We, uh, a couple of years ago or a year ago, actually, we had a regular medical plan. You would go in to see the doctor. You would pay, like, a small co-pay, like $20, and then, you know, you'd get your checkup and everything. And uh, if you went into anything major, you know, there was um, a deductible of some sort, you know, maybe $500 or something. And, you know, after $500, everything else was pretty much paid for. I don't know. You know, there's maybe some low percentage for certain things where, you know, you, you, you would be your responsibility. Just just standard medical plan. But the problem is we, we live – or the business I'm in has um, – you know, like I said, only like 13, 14 people, and most of them are pretty old. Uh, I'm one of the youngest people there, and I'm almost 40. I'm 38. 
So um, the, the, the person that's the youngest there is a girl, and I think she's 35. So um, there's nobody that young, and most of the people are pretty old, and they all have kids, and a lot of these people have medical problems. We've had a, we've had a cancer, we've had um, a, a couple of spinal surgeries. We, you know, so basically um, the the medical insurance for this building that I'm in, even though I've had no problems, I'm the one guy that's like you know, no family, no real medical issues, nothing. Um, uh, the insurance rocketed, you know, to, uh, the, the premiums. They they kept juicing them up. So uh, the the owner said, "Well, look, we can't keep, you know, we can't keep paying for this. Uh, it's just getting to, to to be too high. So we're gonna have to change the medical plan." So now, the medical plan that I have today, um, it, basically, I'll tell you from the family standpoint because this is how most people understand it. Uh, I won't tell you mine because mine's a little bit different because I'm single. Um, but from the family standpoint, um, the way it works right now is that there's a three thousand dollar deductible. Okay, uh, per year, right? Three thousand dollars. So that all comes out of your pocket. If you go January one to the doctor, and you go in there, you immediately have to pay um, up to the three thousand dollars or more, and then they may just reimburse you. But uh, the the way the insurance works is it's a three thousand dollar deductible, which is insane. And then after that, though, after that first three thousand dollars that you pay out of your own pocket. Um, the, uh, the, the rest of it is, um, paid 100%. Okay. So, Hey, if you've got some kind of serious illness, that's a pretty good deal, right? Cause you spend your first 3000 and then all that other money is covered 100%. Um, but if you're like me and you don't really have too many things wrong with you, and most of the time, if you do go to the doctor, it's like a checkup or something, you know, maybe a flu shot or whatever. Um, I'll never, I'll never clear that. I mean, that'll never happen to me. So I, I basically have no medical insurance. Yes, I have that insurance that, okay, what if situation, if I get into a car accident or something, um, fine, right? Uh, okay, I have that. But uh, otherwise, uh, as a benefit, you know, as an employee benefit, for me, personally, it's, it's you know, it's, it's what good is it? Yeah, I'm just paying it all out of my pocket. Now, the one thing they did do is that they used to take, uh, like, um, I don't know, $75, right, out of um, the, our, my pay, and that would go, that would pay for the medical premium uh, for, for my uh, single. And then what they ended up doing was that they said, okay, well, what we're going to do now, since you've, we've changed this medical plan, is that you're going to get um, a, a, a credit card, right? And you can then deposit pre-tax money into this credit card, um, which will then you can use for your medical expenses. Though they're pre-tax, uh, and we're going to only take twenty-five dollars out of your check rather than seventy-five. So now you're going to have this fifty dollars, right? That you can then, if you want, which tax-free, you can put it into this um, this medical benefit. So so it's like some weird sort of mental trickery. Like you're already, you know, this is your money. I mean, you're paying it. It's not anybody. You know, it's coming out of my check. And um, they're saying, well, now I can put it into this account, and I can put it into this savings, this medical savings account, and I can use it for all this stuff. I can buy aspirin, Tylenol, and um, anything you can buy at a drugstore. I can use it for that, and it's tax it's tax free. Um, and of course, if I go to the doctor, I can use it for my doctor pay, my my bill pay, and stuff like that. So um, if I put in enough money into that account, and I earn up the three thousand dollars on there, then I could use that. And then I wouldn't ever, you know, then my deductible would kick in and I wouldn't have to worry about it. So in some ways you think, well, that's pretty cool, except that it's my money and I'm still spending it, you know, and I still have this gigantic um, deductible, so I'm, I'm kind of losing. Um, 
And but then, right, Obama, you know, the, the whole medical plan change over thing made it so that these new health savings credit card things that people like me have um, will no law you will no longer be able to use them to buy um, over the counter medication of any sort. So I can't use them to buy aspirin or cough drops or anything anymore. I can only use them to buy prescription medication or um, you know, doctor visits. Why, why is that? Because the drug lobby, probably. Because it was easier for people just to go in and buy the OTC, the over-the-counter medications, for their problems, and they were using these credit cards to do it. And now they say, oh, well, no, we want it to be the, um, the, the prescription drugs, you know, the, the, the more expensive ones. That's how we make our money. So now you can't buy the OTC. You can only buy the prescription medication with the credit card. It's great how this country works, man. It's so fucking, it's so fucking corrupt. So, so great. So now I'm I'm screwed. You know, if I want to go buy like cough medicine or something, I just you know, I, just like anybody else, right? I got to go pay for it out of my own pocket. Um, but unlike everybody else, if I go to the doctor, um, I have to take money out of my own pocket to pay my giant deductible. And so the sad thing is, is that my boss is basically telling us, um, you know, this thing that probably at the end of the year he's going to have to renew our our thing, and that this deductible that I have to pay, uh, and everybody pays like their three thousand, is going to go up. Most likely, maybe not, but most likely because everybody's premiums keep going up. So that rather than three thousand dollars, everybody might get stuck with like say four thousand dollars that they have to pay before their actual insurance kicks in and starts paying for things. So, you know. Uh, and, and one of the things as well is that I sit around and I, and I think about all this and, and, you know, and I know I'm kind of like um, going off about the, the, the problems at my work when some, a lot of people are out of work right now. But I'm just trying to detail the fact that, like, why this place is going to, like, it seems like it's going to sink. I mean, when your boss is coming in and telling you that he hasn't had to lay people off yet, you know, but it's probably going to happen, um, you, you just get into a point in your brain where you start thinking, you know, okay, Obviously, I'm not going to be working at this place um, too much longer because apparently there's not that much money and the big customer's leaving and, you know, there's a concern. So, hmm. And even if things were all like hunky-dory and everything and, you know, it's all just great and the the same as it ever was, um, the the thing is, is that, okay, I'm a programmer. And I'm also a systems administrator. I do all the hardware for the company. I write software. I do ASP.NET development. I, um, I, I install all of the... Anybody gets a new computer, comes in, I install all the software on it, set it up on the network, get it going. If somebody has a problem with a piece of hardware, I fix it. If a hard drive fails, I replace it. If All that kind of hardware stuff, okay? I also do all the networking. I make sure the network works. I do the DMZ. I do the firewall. I do the firewall rules, the access rules, the in and out rules. I do the the Active Directory access, and I set up all the servers, web servers. Um, uh, we have like a support software package that we use. I set that up for everyone, and I keep the entire operation running, uh, night and day, 24 hours a day. I'm on call just to deal with that, and I program, okay, and I'm asked to develop, so I'm actually a like a full time developer and a full time hardware. Um, a network engineer uh, at this company, and um, uh, you know anything that comes up, man, anything at all, uh, I'm asked about it. And then what's even crazier? What's even crazier than that? Okay, is that when our customers have problems with their networks, with their setup, with whatever they've got going on, our support department is t- typically asked to try to figure out what's wrong with it for the customer because the customer is like, I can't use your software. Because I don't have, 
you know, my printer set up right or something. And we can't go to them and be like, well, you need to figure out what's wrong with your printer. I mean, we, we should, but the way my business is structured, we can't. Um, so a lot of times I'll have to get involved in the conversation with the customer or the customer's people to help them figure out what's wrong with their network and their system. So I spend an enormous amount of time trying to figure this shit out. Like, for instance, here's a, here's a perfect thing, okay? We had a customer, and uh, they were running our software, and uh, it, our software requires a server um, that holds the data, okay? SQL Server. And uh, this customer was unable to uh, get at their data. And the support people were like, look, I don't know. I go to where there's a, there's a share drive here, and I, I try to go to it, and it, there, it's, not, it's not connected. Do you have any idea why, where this thing is? Like, now, now, listen, I've never been to this guy's place. I have no idea. I've never seen any, you know, no idea what this guy is. The first time I've ever heard about any of this. So I look at the share drive, and it says, you know, it's, it's mapped, obviously, to a computer, right? It's mapped to, say, um, uh, computer B, okay? Or let's, let's go, let, actually, let's call it server B. Let's just be a little bit correct here. Server B, okay? So I'm like, well, do they have access to server B? Is there a computer there called server B? And they're like, and they're like, no, the, the computer you're on is the only server we have. And I'm like, okay, well, this is mapping to another computer. Do you guys have another computer there? Another, is there a computer there? No, they only have a laptop and this one server. And I'm like, okay, well, somebody installed this data the SQL server on this server B. Do you know where this is? And you would think that we have, like, like our staff and stuff keeps records of things and, and, and uh, tracks all this stuff. No, it doesn't happen. So, so then, okay, I'm looking at it, and uh, I, there's, like, people around me looking at it, too. And I've never used this technology before, but Microsoft has their own um, uh, virtualization software. Um, that they call Hypervisor, and uh, Hypervisor, I just saw it on there. And the only reason I know about Hypervisor is just because, you know, I, I, I don't know, this is just what I do. I've heard of it. And um, I said, well, there's Hypervisor. Why don't we fire that off and see if there's something in there? So sure enough, this customer that we had had an IT person who was not a full-time employee set up a virtual server on their server to create this other virtual server, right, that ran uh, in this hypervisor, which was server B, but then it wouldn't fire off anymore. So we had to tell them, we were like, okay, you need to contact your other IT person in order to figure out how he set this up, in order to get this server figured out, in order to get it installed. This is my job. This is what I do every day. It is absolutely nerve-wracking to the point where, like, you, you never get anything done. And, and it's like you... You are trying to develop in this environment where you have people coming up to you constantly saying, this customer is getting this, this customer is getting this problem, can you come look at this? We don't actually have a quality assurance department in my software development. Normally the way things work is you have, you have three departments, okay? You have a uh, support department, which is your lowest level, and then you have a quality assurance department, and then you have programmers. And your quality assurance department is actually supposed to be the mid-level between the programmers and, and, and support. And what they're actually doing is, is they draw up specs that say, you know, this is what the software is supposed to do, this is how, where it's supposed to be installed, these are the actions that are supposed to be performed, and they make sure that it is, you know, um, 
that they test it and everything and make sure that it's actually doing A to B to C, right? And then when a customer comes back and says this isn't working, they have a, a you know a, a, some sort of a process in place. In a perfect world, they have a process in place that says you know is it doing A, B, and C, and let's troubleshoot it and figure out why it doesn't work. And then if there's actually a bug, if it's not doing A, B, and C now, um, if something's not in alignment, that's when you come to the program machine and you say okay this isn't working, we need to have a fix. Okay, but we don't have that department. We only have support and programming. So if any time support doesn't know anything, which is most of the time because most of these guys don't have computer degrees, they don't, they're not interested in computers, um, they don't study computers, they don't care about computers. Why they are in this job is basically because it's a pretty good check, and um, they kind of know some of the business rules, which is good, but the, the, as a software company, they, they're not interested in software. So anytime there's a software problem with the software that we sell, they got to go to programming. And in programming, we try to, you know, we help you know, we get up and we go over there and we look at it, and sometimes it is our fault, and sometimes it's their fault, um, and a lot of times it's the customer's fault. But in that environment, you can't sit there and you can't actually do any work. I mean, you can't, like, sit down and start writing code, yet we do. I mean, that's what we do. We sit there, we, we throw headphones on to block out all the noise and everything that's going on, and we try and slam out some code um, in, in order to get it done, and we all work individually. So I don't work with anybody around me because it would be that would be impossible. So I write entire applications on my own, like entire whole freaking uh, business structured website. Um, I've written in like the last three years. I've written four major applications, uh, and you know one of my applications makes up half the company's revenue. So, um, and like I said, there's only three of us. So it's insane. It's insane. I, do I sound a little overworked, a little stressed? I I am. I mean, I'm I'm completely fucking burned out on it. I've been doing this for over ten years. I I really wanted this company to be a success, um, but the decisions that are made and the money that's available has really made that impossible. And the ideas that are thrown around in order to try and you know, from a programmer standpoint, when you go in and you say, you know, this would be a good idea if we do this, or we should change this, or this would be more modular and we should do it, you know, they listen to us, but they don't do it because basically um, we have a uh, an application that, that tracks our project management, which is also something I set up, and the um, the project management software that we run um, has. Okay, now there's three programmers, remember this, okay? Has somewhere around 100 projects in it, and the entries for those 100 projects is somewhere in the vicinity of around 2,000 to 3,000 open um, tasks that uh, want, they, they want to get done. And now that sounds insane, okay? You think, well, why won't they hire somebody or do something like this? I don't know, man. It's it, because the people that are running the show, it are just not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. And you would think, well, why is there so many tasks? Why don't you guys just stop developing this and start working on something new? Okay. Now, see, here's the problem. We charge our customers, and this is pretty standard for this sort of industry. Okay. It's like when you're in this sort of corporate environment, this is actually somewhat of a standard thing. Um. We charge our customers a yearly uh, support fee, which is um, a percentage uh, off the top of the of the software. So if you sold the software, we, we don't sell it for this price, but let's I'm just using a round number. Uh, let's say we sold our software package for $1,000, okay? We might take 10% from them every year as a support fee. So every year they have to pay $100. 
and they pay that, and then that enables them to call our our people in support, our support team, uh, any time of day. And what has happened is that the customer calls up and says, I really need X to be in this application. I need this to be here. I need this. I'd like this and this and this and this and this. And we don't say no to customers because, you know, we don't want to lose their business. So we just write it down on a project list. We just say, okay, they want this button placed here or they want this to do this or we, they would like these ex, this extra information here for their business. And uh, we put it on the project list and we're expected to do it. And this is why our software has become so huge and ungainly because we're forced to continually add things to the software without ever getting into the software and streamlining it or fixing it or making it better or anything like that. Um, and we can never stop doing it because there are more things added to the list every day than there are people available to actually knock things off the list. So um, the applications that we have are never going to be done, and we're, we don't have enough staff to write anything new. So um, can you say we're fucked? I think we are. I mean, I don't see any solution to this problem. And, uh, you know, we've reached a point, I think, where we're done discussing it, too. I mean, it's not like, well, a lot of times what happens is, and it's kind of funny. It's actually sort of a funny thing. Uh, we'll get people in. We'll get, um, uh, once in a while, like an employee will leave and we'll get a new employee. Or um, we'll get people from the outside that will come in and show us something, um, you know, resellers or consultants or things like that. And uh, they see the way we're doing things where I work. And they think, well, if I just show these guys the right way, like how things are done, and show them, you know, how great this is, that um, they'll, their eyes will be open, they'll see the way, and, and they'll say, that's great, you know, we're going to do it that way, and stuff, and they come in, they show it, and then they're, the people that are in charge are not interested, they're just, and they just, the, the people that came in and showed it are just like, wow, <laughs> you guys are you guys are screwed. And it's like, yeah, we, we are. But we're in this weird industry where it's like, you know, it moves kind of slow. So, you know, we've been we've managed to hang on and probably going to hang on for, uh, you know, at least a couple more years, maybe three or four years. But thing is, is I'm going to be 45 or something, or I'm going to be getting a little bit older. I'm going to be going into my towards 50. And, um, uh, that's when they're going to be like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to have to, we're going to have to close up shop because um, we're out of money. And, you know, then what am I going to do? You know, because I've been busting my ass on this shit for years, and, you know, there's, um, there's, it, it, I don't think, I don't see an end game for it. I don't see how we can compete going into the future. You know, it, it's not a normal development life cycle. Um, really what these guys ought to be doing, seriously, is that they shouldn't have development. They shouldn't have developers. They should just contract out people to write things for them and then uh, resell that software because they're very good at selling and, and uh, selling the software and they should just get out of this whole um, development because they're not interested in it. They don't really want to do it. So, I don't know. And then even if like things did work out, though, like if I was going to stay there and you know because somehow we got some miracle benefactor who decided to just fund this nonsense, um, the, the, the problem is, is that, you know, listening to me, you realize that I'm com completely over, like overworked, and, and at least it, as far as like stretched too thin uh, across too many different variables, that I can't keep doing this. 
I mean, I'm luckily still, you know, 100%. I still got all my senses. I still feel like I do when I was in my 20s. I still feel nimble. I still enjoy reading and studying and doing all this stuff, and I hope to God I can do that as long as possible. Well, you know what happens, man. You get into, like, you know, you see people, and they get into their 50s and 60s and stuff like that. They start slowing down. They're not, they're not retaining stuff as quickly. And, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to be, like, spread this thin, um the rest of my life, you know, and, and the problem is that it's such a small company, there's no room for me to go anywhere, I'm not going to be management, I'm not going to be um, in charge of anything, I can't lead a project, so, you know, I'm stuck, I'm in this, I'm in this one position, working on about 20 different things, uh, you know, trying to um, make everybody happy as much as possible, and I'm uh, unable to um, get out of it. In, in any uh, in any way, so I don't know, man. Like I said, somebody needs to hire me and give me a job doing something where like there's some uh, there's some structure and some some vision as far as like you know making uh, long term profit and goals and giving me like a retirement and everything at some point. So when I do turn seventy and I retire, you know that I, maybe I'm in a I'm a management position or something, or at least I'm leading a team, you know, or I have goals and things to shoot for. I can get a raise, you know. That kind of thing. I mean, this is the same thing any of you want, you know, that are listening. The same things all of you want. You want a normal job. You want to get a raise. You want to, um, you know, maybe every year, you know, you can understand. I mean, I think everybody can understand. If your company's not doing well, you take a lot, you know, one year, maybe two, you don't get a raise. Okay, because, you know, the company's not doing well. And my company's not doing well. But my company is talking like it's never going to be doing well. You know, it's never going to be doing well. So I'm never going to get a raise. I'm never going to get an increase. Uh, you know, my medical benefits is going to get worse. So it's like everything's going backwards for me. It's like I'm getting less. You know, inflation goes up every year. I get less money. I get less benefit. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really stuck in a rock in a hard place because I just don't know what to do about it. You know, I, I, it's not a crisis. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, two to three years from now, I'm going to be able to, like, still be there. Um, but it's going to get worse. You know what I mean? It's still going to be a bad situation. Uh, the people there are nice. They're they're trying their best, but it's just not an industry that they're really into. They, they, they all kind of fell into this industry. They're not really into software. It's the craziest thing. It's a software company. It's just not really that into software. And um, I wish it was the other way around, but it's not. They're they are into the business that they're in. They know the business that they're in. This this um this records business. But they, um, when it comes to the software side of it, they leave it to me and the other two guys in, in, in this one room. And that's kind of crazy because you're thinking, well, Jesus, man, this is a software company. I mean, you need these business rules. You need, you know, if you're working for an insurance industry, you need to have all the insurance rules in order to write the, you know, the insurance software. But if your job is to sell software, then you should be interested in software. And that's just not the case. It's not the case where I work. And it's, and it's just sort of, I don't know, it's sort of mind-numbing because I'm like this guy that has all these things running through my head and there's all these cool things going on and, I, you know, I want to discuss all this stuff with other people, that, you know, that are like-minded and everything and um, I don't work with anybody like that. I mean, I just don't work with anybody that's interested in, in, um, in a lot of the technologies that I'm interested in. And um, I don't know. It's just pretty crazy. So anyway... That's my whole long work craziness that's been going on. It's a little bit technical, but, you know, I thought you would enjoy it on the latest Oblast. So this Oblast uh, actually wasn't supposed to be that long, but it looks like it's going to go a little bit long. I only had one story I wanted to tell. 
this week. I do, I do know that it is um, September 11th today, and this is not a September 11th story. Um, it, you know, but I probably just uh, should stop and you know uh, say something about uh, September 11th. Um, I tell you, uh, you know, when September 11th happened, I was laying in bed. I had actually been working um, at this job that I'm at today, and um, I was uh, exhausted because for some reason I had been up until uh, around four in the morning or so, um, and uh, had recently gone to bed, and uh, so when everything was going down, I was uh, I was asleep, and I, I had a TV in my room, I had a one-bedroom apartment uh, in Lakewood, and um, it was just this little shitty apartment, and I, but I had like this small TV in my room, um, I don't even know if I had cable, I don't, I don't think I did, um, so I just had like regular TV, and I had... Um, uh, somebody called me uh, at first. I think it was Chet from um, uh, Valve. He was he didn't work there then, of course. But um, he called me and he was like, uh, you know, hey man, turn on your TV. It's crazy. You know, things are things are nuts or something like that. So um, you know, so I didn't know what he was talking about. But I was wiped out and I wasn't listening to him. And then my brother called and he la- he was laughing on the phone or something because. My brother was driving in in his truck, so he didn't see what was going on. Um, and and he was driving, and he was like, "It's crazy, man! You better turn." He's like, "It's it's all going crazy now." So um, so at that point, I didn't know what the fuck, but I had two people call me. So I remember turning it on, and of course, you know, you're seeing um, the uh, the World Trade Centers, and they were on fire at the time that I was watching it. And uh, at the time, they were showing people jumping off the buildings. Um, that's something that you don't. Um, you know, when they show the World Trade Center stuff later afterwards, you know, um, after the fact, a lot of the television stations um, stopped showing the video of people jumping off the off the buildings. But they were showing them from, you know, because helicopters were flying around, things like that, that they were showing the people at the time when it was live, um, leaping to their death um, uh, from the side of the building. And, and, um, uh, and then it was like, um, which was obviously freaking crazy, but... You know, immediately you start wondering, you know, like everybody did, um, you know, what what exactly was going on. And, um, you know, you, you, everybody knew that there was two planes that hit the buildings. and um, But we didn't know about Osama bin Laden. And we didn't know about, um, uh, at the time, you know, in, in the United States at the time, if you remember, we didn't really have any enemies. I mean, you know, we still didn't much care for Iran and... Um, you know, North Korea has always been kind of crazy, but you know we've never had anything like this, and this was uh, this was really unusual, and um, you know, uh, but uh, so you know everybody was still trying to figure it out, and, and and you sit there and you're like, well, this is this is fucked up, and um, uh, a lot of details weren't coming through. I mean, there's a lot of smoke in the air. You couldn't see things too well. You didn't have all these great camera angles that you have today. When you go back and look at anything, you know. Any video you see on YouTube or any news clip or anything, it's always like the perfect angle today because they've had lots of time to go through all that information and, and uh, you know, find stuff to talk about and, and show you the, the best footage that they have. But when that shit was going on live, um, a lot of it was just smoke on the screen. I mean, the, the, the cameras weren't right, you know. They, they didn't know what they... They didn't have they they didn't have all the pictures of the planes hitting the buildings yet because they people on the street filmed those things and the, the people on the street had to give them to the people in the studio so, the, so they didn't even have that you know um, at the time they just had on the news they just had the buildings on fire 
with people jumping to their death. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. And then um, my girlfriend had called me from downtown. I guess a plane had um, turned over close to Cleveland. Um, and they had actually evacuated the, um, uh, the uh, key tower, which in Cleveland, that's our biggest building. It has this glowing top. Um, and uh, she had been working there. And so they, she had gotten to go home for the day, and it was pretty crazy. But I lived in Lakewood. Now I was thinking, well, whatever's going on, it, it's not going to impact. It's not going to impact Cleveland, period. Because if you're going to like attack the United States, Cleveland's probably the last place you're going to nail. I mean, it's just terrible. Like there's nothing here, and um, I just didn't know. But I was exhausted. I was so wiped out, man, and I, I felt bad for what was going on. But see, you know. The thing is, is that, and, and my attitude towards this has changed. I'm going to say this now. But back then, you see on television these events happening all the time where people are dying. You see people in um, Africa dying and Israel dying and Palestine dying and uh, Russia and their Chechen war. People are dying. And, and it's, it's on the news every day. Okay, there's a disaster and things like that. And... Um, you know, even in the United States, we have plane crashes where people die and, and uh, t hurricanes that wipe out entire towns where people get killed and um, tornadoes wiping out people and earthquakes and shit. So, you know, um, and, and remember, because you might be sitting there going, yeah, but we were attacked and all this sort of stuff. At the time, we didn't know that. Like, when this was going on, I didn't know that. What we had when I was watching this was two planes that slammed into buildings and no idea what the hell was going on and um and then like no idea no idea how many people were in the building i didn't know that there was like 50 firefighters in each building or 500 or whatever it was um nothing right um because the news people didn't know. It's not like anybody called up the news people and were like, well, by the way, we have 500 firefighters in the building right now. I mean, the, 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 you know, those people that work the desks and the news, you know, they're, the, the information they're getting is so garbagey. They, they didn't know what they were reporting on. And so we didn't know what was really going on. Not at the time. And so uh, then um, the one building collapsed. You know, it fell. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of went straight down like it was detonated, you know, kind of weird. Um, and then the other building you know, uh, collapsed, and um, they didn't have casualty numbers, you know, people were talking, you know, the time of day, there wasn't as many people in there um, as they had thought, and all this kind of stuff, but they still didn't have any numbers, they didn't know, nobody knew what was going on and everything, and again, I was, I, I was just so incredibly tired, so I had, um, I watched it for a long time, I, I, I you know, I felt bad, I, I felt really bad for the people that had to jump to their death. That, that bothered me the most. Um, you know, because it's so, so fucking shitty inside, the, in, inside that building that you choose to leap, you know, to your death. It's, it's fucking crazy. Um, but then I, I had to go to sleep. I mean, I had to. I mean, I was out. And, you know, the thing was that uh, it, when I woke up um, a few hours later when my girlfriend came home and everything and, and we put it on the TV, they still didn't know anything that was going on. I mean, you know, they, they, the, the information that came in, came in, they kept showing, like, like hours later, like, freaking, you know, hours and hours later, like, 
Um, they showed uh, some different clips of the videos of, of the planes hitting the building. They had the second plane um, from numerous angles, because once the first plane hit, um, they had the second plane. You know, everybody was filming the burning tower with their webcam or whatever they had back then. Um, they just uh, the parking lot cameras and shit. It's not like everybody had iPhones or anything back then. Um, but uh, and then you know they had a couple of people that one or two or something like that that had shots of the first plane that they eventually found hitting the building. Um, and then they would play that over and over and over again. You know, but because they they lacked any real information about what was going on. And then you know eventually we find out it was Osama bin Laden and everything like that. Um, yeah, but that was uh, that you know that's kind of how I just basically experienced it. I was uh, pretty detached from it um, because I felt like New York was a million miles away. I mean, really, the World Trade Center to me, I ain't never even. I mean, if you live in New York, I can totally understand it. It was probably like fucking crazy for you, but for where I was, I mean, I didn't even really ever. The World Trade Center was something that never even entered my mind. I mean, I it wasn't the tallest building in the world. You know, I mean, I, it wasn't even the tallest building in the United States, you know. Um, so it was, like, tallest building in New York, you know, tallest two buildings in New York. And um, so if you're in New York, you know, hey, look at that, it's the World Trade Center, you know. But um, in Cleveland, you know, you don't even just, you know, just whatever, you know, you have no idea. And um, so I don't know, it just, I didn't have any sort of uh, sort of connection to it. And one of the, one of the things, though, that um, I, I didn't like, uh, right after it all went down was the fact that um, uh, it seemed like everybody was trying to attach themselves to the events through um, association of people that actually were um, involved in the event. Like, I had a cousin whose brother's wife's mother was there and, you know, and you're just like, you know, but dude, you weren't, you weren't there. You know, you can't fucking understand. You know, you're, how are you affected? You know, you fucking weren't even anywhere. But I can understand in some ways now that, you know, people had a sense of fear and um, this is a really horrific event and, and uh, they, they, um, they, you know, had some real uh, um, uh, poor feelings about it and everything. But, um, you know, when there was telethons and um, everybody out there asking for money for all them and everything, and, and I always thought to myself, well... You know, where was the telethon, and where was all the outrage and everything, and, and where was all the the um, uh, the people coming together over the Oklahoma City bombing, where all those people died in Oklahoma, and the building blew up, and, uh, you know, all those kids were killed, and freaking, um, all those people that worked in that building were wiped out, and there was no, I mean, that was like a, that was a terrorist act, but it was a domestic terrorist attack. But one of the things is, is that it wasn't New York that got hit. It was someplace in Oklahoma. And um, sometimes I feel like New York tends to get a lot of attention primarily because the news that's on every night tends to be based in New York City. And so it's always a news story if it's in New York. So they spend an enormous amount of time in New York talking about New York. And um, granted, it's the biggest city in the United States, I know. But the thing is, is that, you know, you, you, you sort of watch these things and you think there's people that die in plane crashes all the time. Um, there's people that die in car accidents all the time, and um, people aren't coming together and putting together millions of dollars um, and sending it to their families because they died, um, you know, uh, uh, that way. Um, but here we had this sort of um, this this mass get together of of people that uh, came together to 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 do this, and 
Um, I had some, I just had some issues with it. I, I understand though, you know, the, the United States got attacked, which I have found out later, just like everybody else did. We didn't know that at the time, and um, uh, you know, we had uh, a, basically a war going on, and it, it was a fairly complicated one um, against some people way out in the middle of nowhere that we never even heard of before. Um, that were training people to come over here and and do this sort of thing and um, uh, you know and 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 uh, fairly inventive way of of um, you know attacking us you know fairly well organized I mean anybody that looks at that has to think that's pretty that's pretty incredible you know as far as events in history go um, four giant planes being uh, hijacked and um, flown into buildings and one did not make its target uh fascinating you know just fascinating um but a lot of times you know you hear about 9-11 and you hear about you know uh the world trade trade center getting nailed and then again it's very new york centric you know they, they show it all the time but the pentagon got hit too you know people died uh the people on the plane that went into the into the into the ground in pennsylvania died and you don't hear too much about them now this year you do hear about the people in Pennsylvania. Last year, not so much. This year, you hear about a little bit more because I believe Michelle Obama went to Pennsylvania. Um, so they're now they're reporting about it. Um, uh, you know th- that w- what happened there with the, with uh, Flight ninety three. Um, but um, yeah, most of the time uh, they um, it, it seems like it's a very singular New York event, and it wasn't a New York event. Granted, New York took the most damage. They they you know it was pretty. Um, a powerful thing that happened to the city of New York, but um, it was a it was an it was a national thing, you know. And uh, a week later, of course, then we had a situation where you know anthrax started to get spread around and envelopes and everything, and everybody couldn't open their mail because they were afraid we're all going to die from that. Um, you know, so people forget about that too. That because that wasn't tied to Al Qaeda. That was probably some crazy chemist guy in Virginia that was doing it. They think since they've never really decided who did it. But um, we've all been, you know, we were all living in that time going, fuck, you know, now we can't get the mail. It's like, what's going on? You know, what's wrong with this fucking place? Um, and constantly worried there's going to be other shit blowing up and terrorists and things like that. Um, and I think that, you know, you could take away anything I say and pick it apart and, and, and troll me after saying all this stuff. But... I think that everybody comes out of this whole situation on what happened on 9-11 with mixed feelings about a lot of the things that went down, either politically or um, the way certain events were taken care of, or like we were talking about on the sports show, how long it's been taken to build the building, or um, why we're fighting in Afghanistan, or why we went into Iraq, or um, was the airport security not very good, you know, was the response not good, um... You know, was it an inside job or whatever? I mean, everybody has some confusion and um, discourse over the whole events that took place and different angles on it because, in a way, it's actually, a, 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 like I said, a national sort of thing and, a, and an almost um, you know, a personal sort of thing to everybody that had happened to them that was very different. I mean, people go back and they, they talk about when John F. Kennedy got shot and they say, well, when John F. Kennedy got shot, I was here. You know... In the United States, when this uh, 9-11 thing was going down, there was a lot more than just where were you, but it was almost like what happened to you when this went on because this impacted a lot of people. Like Eric, again, my buddy um, who works at Valve, uh, he was actually in Canada at the time, and uh, he was in the air in an airplane, and he was coming back into the United States. 
and uh, on that day, and obviously he got the right flight, right? Um, and uh, w- as they were coming into the United States airspace, um, uh, to uh, I don't know what kind of fighter jets they were. I don't want to say they were F-16s or something because I have no fucking idea. But two fighter jets um, came alongside their, their airplane that he could see, uh, that everybody could see out their windows, and um, uh, escorted the, the plane that they were on back to Canada. You know, where they had to land, and the, you know, because all the flights were grounded in the United States, I don't think they were grounded in Canada. Maybe they were. I don't know, but they weren't at the time. And that's what happened to Eric. Um, two guys that I work with were actually at the um, uh, Foxboro, which I was talking about earlier, the developers conference out in California. And um, when this actually went down, their flight was grounded. They couldn't come back to to Cleveland, so they actually. Um, uh, they were going to rent a car, and all the cars were rented. They were all gone because everybody else was in the same sort of predicament. So they actually had to get on a Greyhound bus and bus it from uh, Los Angeles or San Diego, I forget, um, back to Cleveland, which took days uh, on a bus, which would have been fucking horrible um, because of the situation. So, um, you know, and then, you know, obviously there's people that have relatives that died, um, and all kinds of, uh, you know, the people's probably, you know, witnessed things and saw things. And all, it, it, it's just very personal. Everybody had something that went on uh, around this event. Um, and if you're really young, if you were a kid, I mean, you might have been, you know, seven years old at the time then. And you might be 17 years old today or almost or whatever. Um, you know, and you may not even really remember it all that well. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it was just one of these things where... Um, you know, uh, the United States obviously changed um, fairly dramatically since that took place. Um, you know, our um, economy, not directly related to it, but um, ha- basically has not done well since the um, since those events have, have taken uh, been, been taken on. Primarily because we've spent a lot of money going over to war and uh, to fight, and you know, we had the whole Iraq situation. We're still in Afghanistan after all this time. And, uh, you know, the, um, we have this new higher level of security now. You go into an airport, if you go into an airport at any time, you're faced with, a, a, you know, the, the, the results of what happened on 9-11. I mean, it's still going on to this day. And it may never stop, you know. Um, we may never get back to a, to a time where things were um, safe, uh, safer, you know, from, from incidents like this. You know, granted, the thing is, is that uh, terrorist activity, of course, was never, um, uh, plane hijackings was not, was not something that was new or even new to the United States. We'd had plane hijackings before. In fact, in Cleveland, there was a situation once, um, when I was in sixth grade or fifth grade, um, where, uh, there was a, a hijacker on the, um, in, at Hopkins Airport, uh, you know, and, um, uh, the, um, well, Hopkins is the main airport in Cleveland, and uh, they had gotten the guy and everything like that. My uh, my uh, one of my sixth grade teachers, um, his husband was one of the people that went on board the plane and actually helped to get this guy um, off the plane. That, you know, because he was he was holding the plane hostage. But at the time, anytime that you know anybody that ever taken a plane, they had always um, you know had demands, landed it somewhere, negotiated. Uh, there was even a situation just before 9-11, I think it was just before 9-11, where there were some people who had actually taken a plane and flown it um, into Afghanistan. And the Taliban had actually worked out with them to some extent um, 
that's this guy should um, uh, give up or, or let these people go or something like that because it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't the right thing to do which it sounds crazy but that's actually something that happened um, and uh, anyway I could go on and on about it I mean we all know I mean it's all out there it, it continues to happen um, but uh, you know today I, I feel uh, uh, you know a different sort of sorrow about the, the whole thing that, and the people that it happened to because I think I've I've you know, I've I've more personalized the events that have taken place um, through research and looking it up and things like that. I've you know, I actually went through all of the uh, um, faces of the firemen and the police officers and everything that were involved in their deaths. There's websites out there, memorials, and I've actually sat there and looked at all of them um, at times and and thought about the uh, the events that unfolded and um, you know and how crazy it is so i you know i've matured i guess in a way than i was over 10 years ago in in my in my reasoning that i was explaining earl, earlier uh but um you know it's uh it, it was a terrible event uh, probably the you know one of the worst events that's ever happened in the united states i i still think the worst event would pro probably be pearl harbor um because you know that was a situation that um you know led this country into uh into a, a gigantic war that cost what you know way more lives than the war that we're fighting today um could possibly cost you know hopefully so um you know but at least a second i mean i don't know okay civil war pretty big deal that that's pretty big deal too so i don't know i don't know how you look at this but it's a singular event is like a, a one day event type of thing um, that led to a, a lot of um, a lot of chaos. Yeah, it's definitely probably number one on the list. I mean, the bombing of Pearl Harbor also happened in one day, but its fallout was much more dramatic than um, than what really went down with the bombing of those ships. Um, this is uh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm trying to compare. It doesn't fucking matter. But um, yeah. Anyway, hopefully I just gave you some food for thought. That's all. Something to chew on. I'm sure you've heard enough about it. But so that said. Going into the uh, second half of this show here, I have a true story that I wanted to tell you. This is the fun part of the show. Woo! Uh, getting to the fun part. Um, and uh, this is actually a true story. It's about uh, Cold War. Soviet Union. Kind of wanted to tell a story you may not have heard of before, may not have known about. Um, you can look it up yourself, write me about it, whatever. But here you go. The date is uh, September, or February 24th, 1968, and um, the uh, Soviets had a submarine called K-129. It was a strategic ballistic missile submarine. Normally what they would do with this submarine is they would, um, and what they would do with all their submarines is they, they would have them go out on a mission, and they would run silent surface at uh, approximate times to radio messages and then go silent again. And generally what they would do is they would go out to specific points that they would have, you know, on their uh, orders and um, uh, run drills uh, to fire missiles. This is fairly normal. Um, they would not actually uh, prep a missile um, or anything like that because back then you had to do a lot to get a missile prepped. But they would get out there and, and hold their position, and um, in the event of a war, just it's it's a readiness thing to always be ready to fire missiles. That's what the Soviets did. That's what we did. 
and we probably do it today. So on departure on the 24th of February, K9, K129 reached deep water, conducted its test dive, returned to the surface, uh, and reported by radio that everything was fine. Uh, it then proceeded on its normal patrol. No further communications were ever received from K129. Despite normal radio check-ins, uh, when the submarine crossed the 180th meridian, and when it arrived at its patrol area. Nothing. Okay, nuclear submarine, Russian, Soviet, no more communications. It was supposed to communicate, but it didn't. By mid-March, okay, that's how long it's been, Soviet naval authorities at Kamchatka became concerned that uh, K-129 had missed its two radio check-ins. So I freaking know, half a month later. Um, but I guess because most of the time they run silent, you know, without sending in radio transmissions, that they kind of just waited around to see if maybe it was um, a radio failure or something and that they were going to maybe come back. Um, so, but, so what they did is they stopped being silent and they instructed K-129 um, by a normal fleet radio uh, to uh, break their radio silence and in contact to the, the HQ. Um, and then later they even sent more important announcements, but they were never answered. So by the third week in March, um, Soviet naval headquarters declared that the submarine was actually missing and organized a massive air, surface, and subsurface search and rescue effort into the North Pacific um, from the Kanchaka and Vladivostok um, bases, which are their two main submarine bases in the Pacific. Uh, this highly unusual Soviet surge deployment into the Pacific was correctly analyzed by U.S. intelligence as probably in reaction to the submarine, to a submarine being lost. U.S. SOSIS naval facilities. Um, SOSIS is a, uh, um, they're like acoustic buoys that sit out in the water. And they just listen um, and record um, sounds that travel through the water. And they're, um, you know, sophisticated and sensitive, and they run software that goes back to the to the main um, base, even back then in 1968. And the software can look through the records of, of these sounds and compare them to the sounds that they find at these other buoys and sort of triangulate uh, the location of where various sounds come from. They still use them today. Um, pretty clever thing that we had back then that the Soviets didn't. Anyway, um... So SOSIS was alerted, and uh, they were requested to review recent acoustic records to identify any possible associated signal. Several, oh look, I got a, I got a message on my phone. Damn it. Okay. Several SOSIS arrays recorded a possible related event on March 8th, 1968, and upon examination, produced sufficient triangulation by lines of bearing to provide the U.S. Navy with a locus for the probable wreck site. Okay. So, the Soviets, however, didn't have this information and um, were unable to locate K-129. They just couldn't find it. And so they um, eventually just went back to work as usual and declared it lost with all hands. Um, today, even today, the location of the wreck of the submarine remains an official secret of the um, United States Intelligence Service. But according to Kenneth Sewell, K-129 had ventured 300 nautical miles northwest of Oahu on March 7, 1968. 
It positioned itself to launch one of her three ballistic missiles in a rogue attack on Pearl Harbor. The manner of the launch was purportedly designed to mimic an attack by a Chinese submarine with the intention of igniting a war between the United States and China. Um, Sewell posits that the sinking of K-129 was caused by an explosion of the ballistic missile while it was being readied for launch. Her, he points to an insertion of a small secret fail-safe circuit that would destroy the warhead in the event of an unauthorized launch by a rogue crew member. John Craven, also an investigator, supports a similar conclusion. So the Russians are taking this submarine on a rogue mission. Who knows who organized it? I'm not sure. Took it out to about 300 miles from Oahu, Hawaii, and prepared to launch the missile. They were going to nuke Hawaii and make it look like the Chinese did it. But because the communist government did not trust their military that well, that the KGB had actually had these circuits implanted into their missiles so that if such an incident were to take place, the missile would explode, not nuclear, but explode from the fuel and everything um, on the submarine and cause the submarine to sink. Apparently, this actually happened. Boris Yeltsin, posthumously, I can't pronounce that word, awarded 98 sailors who died aboard the K-129. However, the normal complement of a Gulf-class sub was only 83. So 98 sailors got the, the award, but there were only 83 people on it. What? The official ship's crew manifest was missing from K-129 deployment folder when the ship was declared missing. So that vanished the minute that the submarine was declared missing. No one knows where it is or who was actually ever really on it. And uh, normal crew rest, refitting, and retraining time was violated when K-129 went back to, went back to port originally. They, um, they required it to conduct an unusual sudden deployment after only eight weeks in port following the completion of a previous combat patrol. And this wasn't during war. This wasn't anything weird. It was just a simple combat patrol that she was going out. But they directed her to go immediately back out on a, um, on a sudden deployment. As many as 40% of the crew that were on board were new to the deployment. Thus never having the opportunity to train as a complete unit on board this sub. So you would think that that alone is a pretty scary, pretty freaking wild part of that story. But that's not the only freaking part. It gets weirder. See, in the United States, we actually knew where the, um, where the submarine was. And uh, we wanted it. And at the time, we didn't really have a good way of going in and getting it. You, you couldn't get a submarine, um, like we, they recovered the Kursk, for instance. Um, you get a big barge with a bunch of big wire, and um, you, you, know, you hook it in through how, you know, whatever you do to hook in one of those things, and you bring it up. Well, the problem is, is that it's a Soviet submarine, and the Soviet Union is going to drive over with their boats, and they're going to see what you're doing, and they're going to be like, you can't be fucking taking our submarine, you know, and that could have caused a war. So we weren't going to do that. So years later, um, 
the uh, the CIA actually um, got together with Howard Hughes, you know the the guy that uh, DiCaprio um, emulated, and uh, had them help them build a boat called the Hughes Glomar Explorer, which was a um, fake vessel. Not not fake. It was a real ship. It still exists today, but it was a gigantic ship, and uh, they had told people that uh, Howard Hughes was going to go out and begin to um, use this to um, scrape the floor for um, manganese nodules, which are these weird sort of crystal nodules that form at the bottom of very deep water. And uh, that was the cover story. But in actuality, the ship had a um, giant uh, lift with a big claw (laughs) in the middle of it, and, uh, and sort of like this underwater dock. And uh, they um, took it out to uh, the um, location, wherever that is, of where this, where this boat is, um, K-129, and uh, they lowered this big claw. Now, this thing was freaking deep. It was um, 16,500 feet deep. You know, a mile is a little over 5,000 feet, so you're talking, um, you know, three miles down uh, in the water. Really deep. Um, and, uh, you know, you're threading a needle to get this thing down there. But they had this big claw, oddly. And um, now the fun part is, okay, nobody really knows what the United States actually got. It's still classified today. The CIA actually filmed the event, and they have the film, but at the moment, until it's released, is uh, classified. We don't know. Now, there's been people that have said, there's been documentaries that have made been made, that um, some people went on record and said, well, they only got um, half the submarine, which included um, some ballistic missiles, and um, like the uh, the tail section, but they did not get the front section, which had cipher books and things like that in it. There are other people that say they got all of it. Now, one thing that did happen was that uh, Robert Gates, who is still our, um, for a little while anyway, um, in charge of uh, U.S. command or whatever, uh, whatever his official secretary of defense or whatever, um, at the time... When Yeltsin was in office, Boris Yeltsin in, in Russia, um, uh, there was this situation where we wanted to find out, now that the Cold War was over, uh, information about Vietnam, um, you know, people that were missing in Vietnam. What happened to them? What happened to their bodies? And the Russians came back and said, well, you know, um, what about our guys? Meaning, we know that you have our submarine. What about the dead bodies that you recovered from our submarine? What happened to them? You know, admit, basically, that you took our submarine. We know you did, you know, but but come forward in a minute. And Robert Gates actually took a video from that CIA recording of the... Um, raising of that submarine and at one point they had actually taken the remains of the uh, Russian soldiers uh, naval whatever uh, navy men 
Uh, and um, they had actually had a burial for C for them. They actually played the Russian National Anthem, and they had actually, you know, had uh, whatever it is in the, you know, coffins or whatever it was, and, um, uh, you know, had them uh, burial at sea um, for them in, in a very um, nice way. And he had actually presented that to uh, those videos of just that, not of the raising or anything like that or what they got, but of that video to show that we had, you know, what had actually happened to their men, and that was intended intended to help soften relations in order to get more information about what happened to Vietnam War era POWs. So, um, so again, everybody knows that that event took place, and, um, you know, somewhere, probably, in the United States, that submarine still sits. It's probably somewhere, you know, in California, uh, you know, Long Beach or whatever's over there that's, uh, you know, still owned by the Navy. And um, the nuclear missiles themselves have probably gone someplace else. They probably trucked them out to wherever so they could be um, taken apart and looked at and everything. But, um, yeah, and they, you know, they probably have all the code books and everything. One day that story's going to, you know, um, when t- enough time gets passed, it becomes declassified. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to find out all the information about um, exactly what happened. Um, because right now, again, it's all um, classified. So there you go, K-129. You can find out more about it. There's also other theories. There's lots of theories about it, lots of different um, stories. You know, part of it is, um, part of that is based, you know, loosely based where Tom Clancy got his idea for uh, the hunt for Red October, um, because uh, K-129, I believe, was called Red Star. And um, Red Star uh, and uh, Red October... um, you know, uh, sort of the same sort of thing, you know, they, Tom Clancy has them, you know, becoming uh, um, guys running to become Americans or something, you know, I want to become American and live in Montana and have a horse farm or whatever the fuck it was, you know, I'm going to give up all this for that, you know, bullshit. Um, You know, but that was the, uh, that was the story that Tom Clancy put together. And uh, one thing that's also interesting about that is um, uh, the, um, a lot of times you hear about Crazy Ivan. If you've ever watched that, you'll hear about Crazy Ivan. And Crazy Ivan is when a submarine commander that was Russian, according to Tom Clancy, was when this submarine commander will stop and turn completely around in order to uh, see who's following him. That's actually not what a Crazy Ivan actually is. Um, that's actually what they call a Yankee Doodle. A Yankee Doodle is when a submarine turns completely around to see what's behind them. Um, which actually happened when they were um, pursuing one of these new submarines um, that the United States was. They will sit behind a submarine and track them. And then um, basically they have to sit still when the submarine performs a Yankee Doodle and or follow them around um, while they're doing their Yankee Doodle so that they can't actually see them. But a Crazy Ivan, which actually does happen as well, is that a Russian submarine does a 180-degree spin and then goes forward, meaning that they sort of know you're there and that they're going to ram you. They're going to just drive right into you. So, you know, you have to make yourself known. It's very dangerous to do that because, obviously, you can hit the other sub and kill both subs. Um, And that's why it's called a crazy Ivan. So there's a little trivia piece for you there in case you never knew that. Um... But I guess, you know, Tom Clancy liked Red October better than Red Star, and he liked uh, 
the name Crazy Ivan better than, which sounds cooler than Yankee Doodle. Yankee Doodle sounds a little gay. So, yep, that's it. That's the old blast this week. Don't know if you find it that interesting, but, um, you know, I can't do uh, crazy audio recordings all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, when I got stuff together, I, uh, I throw something out there. So, that's it. I, I, I did have the intention of having this one with the Australian guy, but he's got um, some difficult scheduling issues. And uh, maybe one day we'll get that figured out, but I don't know. He, It's nice that he's able to, you know, call in and talk and everything like that, but... It's just difficult. You know, he's in Australia, I'm in the United States. He's got a job, I got a job. We, we can't really sync up on a reliable time and get the show done. Um, I may have days on from India at some point in the future here once I get a time, enough time in my schedule to um, to book somebody in for, for a conversation. Uh, it be interesting to get his perspective on India as well as moving to Canada and uh, hear what that's all about. And, um, you know, maybe some other guests at some point. Like I said, I'd like to get that guy on from the post office who I always forget to contact uh, and uh, all that good stuff. So some more of that will happen on the show as well. And then also my all my uh, goofy stories um, will happen. So that's it. We're going to be recording VGNR this Sunday. It's a call-in show. And uh, there was a spill recording done three weeks ago. But for some reason, Corey, I don't know, man. I have no idea what's happened with that guy. I keep trying to find out. I keep asking him. Um... I don't know what's going on, so um, I just let him be, let him figure it out. Eventually he will, and hopefully those shows will be up, but I don't know what's going on with Spill. I really don't. People keep sending me emails about it, and I keep poking at him, um, but uh, he keeps saying we're going to talk about it, and we don't, so I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Just kind of leave it up to him. But that's it. BGN will continue on as usual, and you know, if Spill happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, I'll just let you know either way. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more information about this show and all the other shows, go to videogamenews.com. You want to write to me? Send an email to kbaird, that's K-B-A-I-R-D, at vgn.us, and uh, I'll read it on the air, and, you know, we can discuss whatever. Okay? Take it easy. Thanks. Good night.